And we are live. Welcome, welcome, welcome to session three of Spiritpreneur School. I am Aviola Abrams, and we are joined today by the dynamic, the glorious Ooh. Gloria Felt, who is this beautiful young woman who is here with me today. Hello, Gloria. Hello, Aviola. I'm so thrilled to be with you today. Thank you so much for joining us, Gloria. Today's session is actually sponsored by Paradigm Shift NYC. Paradigm Shift is New York City metro area's critically acclaimed and largest feminist group. And they have an incredible roster that includes such luminaries as the dynamic Gloria Felt. They have <laughs> produced sold out lectures discussion screenings and so there will be a link under this for you to see how you can join gloria live at paradigm shift so gloria you have an incredible bio if you don't mind i'd like to tell the people all about you go right ahead now you have me beat gloria i thought i knew that i was going to be a writer when i was six years old your bio says that at five you saw your first poem recited publicly and you knew that you wanted to be a writer. Gloria's passion for social justice propelled her life's work in a different direction first. And her latest book is called No Excuses, Nine Ways Women Can Change How We Think About Power. This book is a culmination of what she has learned along the way and she will be sharing some of that wisdom with us today. People Magazine calls this woman the voice of experience. She was named by Vanity Fair as one of America's top 200 women leaders, legends, and trailblazers, and Glamour Magazine named her a Woman of the Year. Her awards, I could go on and on about that, but what I want to let you know most is that Gloria's expertise in women, powder, power, and leadership comes from a deep well of personal knowledge gained on the front lines. Her journey from teen mom and high school dropout to rural Texas, from rural Texas to president and CEO of Planned Parenthood and best-selling author and visionary leader for women's equality inspires both women and men. Presently, Gloria is the co-founder and president of Take the Lead, a new women's leadership movement to prepare, develop, inspire, and propel women to take their fair and equal share of leadership positions across all sectors by 2025. That is quite the dynamic bio, Gloria. Well, I, I have had the pleasure of living for a long time, first of all, and had the opportunity to do many different things in my life. And, um, you know, each and every one has been interesting, exciting, and, and very fulfilling. But the problem is we're not finished yet. We're not finished, especially when it comes to women and leadership and women being able to take their fair and equal share of, of everything in life at life's table, whether we're talking about the boardroom or the bedroom or or in a job or in a profession in a nonprofit organization the statistics are pretty much the same everywhere women are almost never in any sector more than 18 to 20% of the top leadership and i think that until we change that ratio we're going to keep fighting many of the same old battles that we have been fighting generation after generation. And, and so that's why my passion now is to get women to leadership parity by 2025, because I think I can live long enough to see that. 
Beautiful, beautiful. You absolutely will. And you have been described because of all of this work, because of your passion as a feminist icon. Paradigm Shift, as I said earlier, is a leader in New York City's feminist community. This week, you'll be bringing your nine ways that women can change how we think about power, and we'll be discussing some of those ways in this conversation. Why is this personally important to you? You spoke about why it's important to us as a global community, but why does this matter so much to you, Gloria? That's a wonderful, wonderful question, and I do believe that, that there's always a personal story behind all of these life choices that we make. Mine started with, with my teenage self. And, uh, and, and I, you know, you, you told a part of my story. I grew up in very small towns in Texas at a time when women weren't given much ambition to have careers, even not even really to go to college, although my family wanted me to go to college. And I, and I always loved education. I loved school. I was a good student. And, uh, but you, you know, like a lot of girls, even today, we get very influenced by the culture around us and what we're being told about how we should look, how we should be, how, uh, you know, what, what our life goals should be. And so I, I wanted, I wanted to be like everyone else. I wanted to be normal. That's what teenagers always want to be. And in my little community, being normal meant um, where you really got gold stars were if you were engaged or married before you finished high school. So I did that. And um, I actually, I became pregnant. I got married to my high school sweetheart. I had my first child at 16. And I had three by just after my 20th birthday. Wow. Yeah, it was a wow. It was, it was um, you know, but what happened at that point is for some reason, I woke up. I started awakening to realizing that I could, I did actually, I was still a smart kid. I had never stopped learning. I had never stopped reading. I finished high school by correspondence and I really wanted to go to college. It was about that time that the birth control pill came out. Mm -hmm. So now you begin to see a little symmetry in yeah. my life and how it unfolded. And truly, it was the birth control pill that all of a sudden made me realize, you know what, you can actually plan out your life. You can aspire to other things. I, I mean, I, I love my children. There's, I wouldn't trade anything for them. But, but I, you know, I did have a brain also, and I really wanted to be able to use it. So at that point, with my youngest child, four months old, and knowing that I could plan and space any other children that I might desire to have, I started college. And there was only a community college at that time in Odessa, Texas, where I was living. So once I had finished all the courses I could take there, I began to look around for other things I could get involved with. And I got, got involved in community service activities. I learned a little bit about how politics works, how you make social change, and I became involved in several organizations that were helping to support the civil rights movement. That was also the era when the, the Great Society was getting started and there were programs like Head Start that were beginning. And since I had already decided I wanted to be a teacher, I thought I would go and volunteer at Head Start. And I, I did that as, as a volunteer for a, 
about a year or two. And at that point, my youngest child was getting ready, old enough to go to kindergarten. And I, um, I told the director of Head Start that I was not going to be able to volunteer the following year because I was going to go and see if I could uh, start do, doing substitute teaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, she offered me a job on the spot. So that was the beginning of a career that has, throughout it, really melded a sort of larger look at how can we help people in general have a better shot in society? How can we have people have a better life? Children, and of course, you can't work with children without working with women also. And then I had did have an epiphany during that time that if there were civil rights, women must have them too. <laughs> Woo! Yes. Big, light bulb. <laughs> Big light bulb. Hey, this could apply to me too. <laughs> and uh, and so I I you know it was it was it was a trajectory. It was a path. It was. I often ask people, when do they know they had the power to, and they fill in the blank. And for a lot of people, they have this one big moment when their life changed. For me, it was a series of decisions and a series of opportunities that came my way, and I was just fortunate enough to take them. Beautiful. I do think that, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. done. I heard a bit of an echo. I, I do think that for most of us that it is a series of, often a series of different small decisions that ended up making big shifts within our lives. And one of the things that you, the tenets, all of the tenets of your work are built on is the idea that we as women need to change how we think about power. And you say that your objective is to dissolve women's learned resistance to embracing their own power. I speak often when I speak to groups about you know, the need to stop playing small and to step into our greatness. And so please, Gloria, talk a little bit about that. How do we as women need to change the ways that we think about our own personal power? Oh, that's my favorite topic. And you could call it an obsession at this point. In order, in order to jump into that, I will first just tell you that that work that I did at Start ultimately led me through, again, another series of volunteer activities to um, to start working for, for the small, really new Planned Parenthood affiliate in West Texas in 1974. And, and what I, I just, I got detoured from the teaching career I had planned, as often happens in life. And mm -hmm. I immediately fell in love with the movement. I, I really didn't know anything about it before then, but I just immediately fell in love with it. And I realized that if women were ever going to have the ability to to have the equality that I wanted them to have, they would first have to be able to manage and control their own fertility and own really own their bodies. Be, the, the, the society um, does a lot of different things to, to keep women from feeling like they have autonomy over their own bodies. Mm -hmm. And that first you have to own your body, your own body. And that's the and, and if you can do that, then you can you can go on to the next step. And, and what I came to understand over time was that the next step, of course, is you have to also be able to support yourself, to own your, to, to have the resources to, to uh, you know, they, they don't use the phrase barefoot and pregnant for nothing. You know that phrase that the, they try to keep women barefoot and pregnant because those are the two things that any human being needs to have, control over their body and the ability to support themselves financially, to be able to have any kind of power at all. 
So all of that led me into a wonderful 30-year career with Planned Parenthood, ending as its national president, which was a great honor and a privilege. But after I left, I began to realize from some of the writing that I did and the studying that I was doing of women in society, that although we had changed laws and we had opened doors and we were beginning to see a woman almost everything, women were still not walking through those doors in numbers great enough to reach parity in my lifetime. I mean, it, I, it was, it would, it's a 70 year trajectory unless we do something different. Mm. And so that's when I started really delving into this issue of why was it, if there's a door open, why wouldn't you walk through it? Why were we so naive to think as women in the women's movement earlier in, in, in time, that if we only opened the doors that ipso facto, that was the end of the battle. Not so. Not so. And not so. And you know, I interviewed women all over the country. And I looked, I had to look into my own heart and soul and see what I had done. And then I realized that I myself had had this done this little dance with power through my whole life. That mostly even though I had held positions that other people thought were really big deal, I was still always being a good girl. I was still always doing what I thought other people wanted me to do. I was doing it on behalf of. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you don't lose a piece of yourself in the process. And I really had done that. I had let, first I had let society tell me what to be and do. And then I had let this movement, which I loved and totally believed in, subsume me, subsume my whole, whole personality. And, 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 and then what really gave me, and stop me if I'm going on too long, but no, this is, not you know, at I'm, all. Trying to, I'm going to get to the point of your question. Yes. Um, I, what really was my an, uh, ultimate, I call it my, you know, my comeuppance with power was my, I, when I had to confront my power demons was that in 2008 or so, I wrote a book with Kathleen Turner about her life. And we, we had a wonderful 50-50 relationship. And you know, the, the contract was 50-50 between the two of us. In fact, we never had a piece of paper signed even between us. We were just like friends, this is all 50-50. Uh, I was supposed to get the same share of the media attention and all of that. But when we went to the publisher for our big publicity meeting before the book was to, to come out, the publicist literally turned his back to me and looked only at Kathleen. Because after all, she was the bigger celebrity, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it was, the, I mean, that was the moment when I finally went, you idiot, you've done it again. Mm. You know, you may love her, but you're speaking in her voice, not your voice. Go speak in your own voice. And so that led me into looking at the research. Those two things. Number one, finding out that just generally women weren't walking through the doors. And number two, having to deal with it myself. You know, somebody told me you write the book you need to read. Yes. <laughs> and so it was then that I wrote No Excuses. <laughs> and I really, I delved into the research. And what the research said over and over is that women have less ambition than men. Well, I didn't see that to be true. What I saw was that women had a different kind of ambition 
And that if women felt they needed to do something for the good of the world or their children or some, you know, society or their company, they would do it. They would do it. But they did not have the same level of intentionality mm. about their lives that men do. And that even today, boys are still socialized with more of that feeling of intentionality, which is, you bet I will, because I know I can, because I'm entitled to. Right. Because I own the world. And mm. women are still socialized more to care about what other people think of us. And so... That led me to realize that if women can change how they think about power from the, I don't want to say male definition, but I will say uh, the traditional hierarchical definition of power mm -hmm. as having the power over, like I can make you, Abiola, to do something. I can make you do something. Right. <laughs> That's a kind of power that rightly we don't want because who has borne the brunt of so much of the negative aspect right. of that kind of power over the years? Who has been raped? Who has been abused? I mean, who has, it, it, it's, it's been almost entirely women. So why would we want that kind of power? We know it's not a positive thing. Once we can start changing how we think about it to being the power to, the power to make life better, for ourselves, our kids, our world, the power to create, the power to innovate, to realize that power is not a finite pie at all. Yes. Power is, I mean, if, if you help me and I help you, we have more power between the two of us. Yes. It's not like, it's not like I take a piece of pie and, and there's less for you. We can make more pies together. This is so exciting. This is such an exciting uh, conversation for me, Gloria, because that is exactly the reason why I created this new series of Spiritpreneur School. And my last book was the Sacred Bombshell Handbook of Self-Love, where I talk about the 11 secrets of feminine power, which in essence is exactly what you said, just changing the ways that we think about power and the idea uh, that the way that we may think about power is somehow less than, you know, in terms of thinking of community or the power of our intuition and that those things maybe are somehow less than a traditional masculine-centered approach to power. And I, I had very much, I, I resonated very much with your, and I think that a lot of the women who are watching this with the, the challenges around being a nice girl, fitting in, you know, um, don't make waves, you know, oh that God. sort of thing. So I would love to talk some more about along that, along those lines that I've been talking to my sacred bombshell spiritpreneur tribe, Gloria, about your power tool, going to your book now, your power tool number four. Oh. Embrace controversy. Now, you were the, the CEO of Planned Parenthood, one of the most controversial organizations within this country. And so how interesting that you went from, you know, Mrs. Nice Guy, you know, <laughs> to doing that. And most, many women that I work with one-on-one -on -one as a coach, you know, and that I see in, as a speaker are people pleasers, you know, or fear rejection 
or you know when they are in powerful positions have imposter syndrome and so controversy where we could then get rejected or told that we're bad or wrong is the most frightening thing you know for many women can you please tell us more about this power tool embrace controversy Yes, it is. I, I, I love it. And when people often ask me, which is my favorite power tool, I often refer to this one. So I'm so thrilled that you picked that one out to ask me about. So, um, so yes, it, it, we do start from a position of people pleasing, partly because, you know, it, that's our gender stereotype. And when you break your gender stereotype, you can get treated rather badly. That's called stereotype threat. I mean, that's the, 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 the term that is used in, in the field of, of psychological research. When you break your gender stereotype and, and you really are subject very often to being uh, judged harshly, uh, being viewed as somebody who is, well, what are, just think of some of the adjectives that get used about women when we happen to just happen to express ourselves. She's a ball buster. She's a you bitch. Yeah, all the B words. All those B words. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you if you show an emotion, you must be PMSing. Are you on your period? Yes. yes. I, if, if you want to do something fun, I do this sometimes when I'm teaching a, a workshop or, or, or speaking. You want to do something fun when you do that. I mean, uh, just give people a bunch of post-its and ask them to write down all the stereotypes of men and all the stereotypes of women. And they're going to come up with a lot more of women, and they will all be that kind. It will all be it will all be negative in the in the she was too assertive, she was too aggressive, she was too you know the bombshell, the bees, the bees, right. the, all of those. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so that so um, here's what I learned about controversy from really being being controversial on the front lines, and it is that. And actually, also, I think this also came out of learnings from the civil rights movement, which is that that when you when something needs to change and you know it needs to change, you may create controversy. So there's controversy that you make, and there's also controversy that you take. Sometimes it just comes at you, and you you didn't you didn't start it. I mean, for example, when Margaret Sanger opened the first birth control clinic, she knew she was going to get arrested because it was against the law. Right. But she also knew there was enough public support for her that if she got arrested, people were going to rally to her cause. Right. The same with Rosa Parks and the bus. With, exactly. Exactly right. And Rosa Parks did that. She, she refused to go to the back of the bus at exactly the right moment because she already knew there were people who would, who would rise to her support. And, and that, that, but without doing that, without creating some kind of situation, people weren't going to be paying attention. Things right. would go on just like they always had been. So you've heard, probably heard the saying, to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. Yes. And, and that's part of the principle of, of controversy. So controversy is really just about having the courage to state your convictions and to do something about it and to understand that when you do that, that it actually is helpful to you because if something is controversial, it means people are paying attention to you. So it gives you a platform on which you can present your case. And when you present your case, people have to consider what they think about those issues. And when they have to consider it, they have to clarify what their values are. And when they have to clarify their values, many, many times they'll end up 
coming over to, to what you believe and what you think. Or, or if they've just been neutral, as most people are on controversial issues, they realize that in the case of, of civil rights, in the case of gay rights, in the case of women's rights, hey, you know what? It's really not fair if people aren't treated equally in our society. And so that is ultimately the only way that you can create sustainable social change. Mm, is so to embrace anyone, that controversy. For anyone, Gloria, who, who is watching this, who wants to turn their mission or their message into a movement, you're saying that the embrace controversy uh, tenet, this power tool, is key for them. It is key. It is key. And, and it's important to be careful and strategic about what you're doing. Honestly, none of us can fight every single battle. But once we, if we embrace controversy with a positive intention, with a positive goal at the other end, and we have the courage to stay with it until we get to that end, it's probably going to happen. It, it, it may be your most effective tool. And while I'm talking about it in social movement terms, it's also really true if you think about it in, uh, say, a, a for-profit company. Yes. Because if, you're, if people are not willing to engage in the conversations that may be difficult and controversial, they probably aren't going to be able to create, whether it's a better culture, they probably aren't going to be able to innovate because they won't be able to argue with each other about whether this solution or that solution is the better one. So if we're not willing to embrace controversy, we probably aren't going to be able to move forward on any front. Yes. Yes, I mean, I I remember <laughs> very clearly. I was it was like very later in life than most people learn this. I was like probably about twenty eight or twenty nine, and someone said to me, um, you know, and something like, "Not everyone is going to like you," or "Or not everyone has." That's what I remember what he said. Not everyone has your best interest at heart. Because at the moment, I was very devastated that someone hadn't liked me or liked what. And he said, "Not everyone has your best interest at heart," and I was like. It, it hit me like, you know, like, so for people who are watching this also, not everyone is going to like you. That's true. And, it's and it's all right. And it's all right. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Because if you, if you do what you're doing from a position of integrity, your personal integrity and your sense of values, I mean, one of the other exercises that, that I like to do with people is to, um, is to ask them what's on their shirt. What's on your shirt? You know, what do you wear on your shirt? What's your slogan? What, what is your sense of values? If you're being true to your sense of values, then it's worth a little controversy. And you know, the thing is, even the people who don't like you are going to respect you more yes. if you have a position and you, and you are willing to, to have the courage to stick with it. Even those who don't like you at all, they'll still respect you more. Well said, well said. Well, in your own life, Gloria, you know, you were aligned with Planned Parenthood, as we said, and which was extremely controversial. I'm sure you received hate mail and all kinds of scary people contacting you. How did you have the courage to deal with that every day? I'm, I wish that I could tell you exactly how it happened, but I really think it, it, it was helpful to me that I had already been through that process of clarifying what my sense of values was. I, I always think you have to start with what is your personal mission? What is your what are the values on which you base that mission? What really matters to you in your life? 
And once you can get clear about those things, th there's hardly any kind of threat that can, can deter you from what you feel is the right thing to do. Um, I, I, I learned a lot of the courage from the people who were working even more on the front lines than I was. Mm. Um, from, for example, when we started having really intense and threatening kinds of, of demonstrations, I would go to our clinic at five o'clock in the morning on Saturdays, so I'd be there before the picketers would get there. And, you know, and I would find that our staff, the people who were there serving the patients on the front lines, they just seemed to have no, they just like didn't pay any attention to what was going on out there. They knew what their purpose was, and their purpose was that next young woman who needed their help and support. And they just didn't let anything deter them from that. And so part of it was just observing the extraordinary culture, uh, courage of the people on the, who were even more on the front lines than I was. The one, one thing that happened one time was I, I went to talk to the chief of police. I was in Phoenix by this time. I went to talk to the chief of police in Phoenix when I knew we were going to have a big demonstration to make sure that we were getting adequate police coverage. And he said to me, well, why don't you just close the clinic when you know there's going to be a demonstration? And that was one of those click moments for me. And I said to him, I'm sorry, would you close down the airport if you heard there was going, there might be a hijacking? Would you want, to, I mean, would, would you want people to change the people who are not doing anything wrong, the people who are allowing other human beings to live and let live with their life, would you want them to be the ones who couldn't have the freedom of movement? No. You'd want to try to make their, their airplane trip safer. You would implement security policies to make their, their, their travel safer. You, we're not doing anything wrong. We're just here providing healthcare services to women. And why should we stop doing that when there are people out there who are, you know, who are trying to disrupt these women? And, and so that was a click moment for me. I was like, no, no, it is absolutely the wrong thing to do to change your life because somebody else doesn't like what you're doing. That's just, that is, it was just wrong. <laughs> that's the key there. You just yeah. said it's wrong to change your life because someone else doesn't like what you are doing. Exactly. Yes, yes, very key. I think that many of the women who are watching this have a, a movement that they want to launch. And so I want to talk about power tool number seven. These tools, the numbers I'm, I'm giving are from Gloria's book, which you should absolutely pick up wherever you buy books. Power tool number seven is create a movement. Yes. Now, this, Gloria, is what I help women to do to answer their calling, refine their purposes, and create a movement. How do you recommend that women do this? Let's go deep, Gloria. Give us the good stuff. Give us the real deal. Okay. I'm sitting here. Here's the real deal. Here's the real deal. Um, and the real deal is that it's not easy, but it's not complicated. So that's the good news. It's not complicated. That doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's easy. It takes a lot of hard work. And the first piece of hard work that you have to do is identify other people who share your concerns and share your vision for whatever problem it is you want to solve or whatever mission it is that you want to make happen in this world, 
the first thing you need to do is to think about and discover who are the other people who would be your allies. And you need to be willing to ask them for help. And you need to be willing to offer your help to them if they need your help for something so that you form an alliance. That's the sisters part. I call this sister courage, by the way. That's my, that. that's my lingo for it. That's my lingo for, for creating a movement. Yeah. Yes. So that's the sister part is be a sister. Find your, find, you called it your tribe. Absolutely. Find your tribe. Find the people who share your concerns. Reach out to them. Offer them your help. Ask them for help when you need it. The second is to have the courage to put the issues out on the table. And that's where the power tool number four that we just talked about also comes into play, is together to have the courage to, to talk about what needs to be talked about and to figure out how to say what you want to, to do with your movement in terms that people will, will listen to. And that it probably means you're going to need to be a little bit provocative. And then that's not enough. There's a third piece, and this is the one that will determine whether you're successful or not. And this is putting sister and courage together with a strategy, mm. with a strategy that you've thought about very clearly and deeply, and where you've identified where the power points are, what do you need to move, what do you need to change, and you've identified, you have a big vision you can see what, they, what life is going to be like when you have achieved that. But you can also see and you've identified the steps along the way. And you've done the hard work of gathering your data, gathering your information so that you can, you can, you can argue your case effectively or you can bring people over to your, to your, into your movement because you have a compelling story to tell. So, um, so it's, it's uh, sister courage, be a sister, have the courage to put the issues out on the table and then have a strategy where you all go together and you keep moving and you keep going, doing it until it's done. I, I, I like to quote Yoda if there's a Star Wars fan watching yeah. in here, but that Yoda, Yoda says, there is no try. Yes. There is do or do not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it takes that kind of steely-eyed persistence to get yes. rid of sometimes. But if you do those things, you will almost inevitably be able to make the change you want to make in this world. Brilliantly said. Brilliantly said. And that works, you know, for social enterprises, for-profit enterprises, not-for-profit, across the board, that those are tools that you could take and be able to, to launch your movement. You know? Absolutely. It even it even works at home. You know, who does the laundry and <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you can organize anything that way. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> well, I went to school, Gloria, with one with the daughter of one of the former heads of Planned Parenthood. I know you're a small club. Mm -hmm. I went to school with Faye Waddleton's daughter. And even as a kid, I thought that she was that Faye was this incredible, formidable figure and the kind of woman that I aspired to be. 
who were your role models growing up and who are your role models now? Because people think that once you're an adult, then if you're a successful adult, that somehow you don't need role models. But I think that we always do. Yeah. Oh, we always, we always need role models. And, and we never, and we need to never stop learning from people and, and taking inspiration from, from people. So role models. Okay. Um, first of all, my grandmother was a, a role model for me. She, I, we lived with my grandmother during the first nine years of my life in, in her home, and she was my primary caregiver during some of those years, so we were very close. But the reason she was a role model is that she had, she had come to this country not knowing a word of English. She moved to a little town in Texas where nobody else spoke her language except the husband that she married on the very day that she got off the boat. Wow. And um, yes, and and yet she had she had really found her place, and she was she was a, a, a community volunteer. She did a lot of volunteer work. She had run their their family business when her husband had died very young. And honestly, today it, this today I'm pretty sure my grandmother would be the head of General Motors or something like that. You know, yeah. I mean, she she would she had that kind of capability. So. I, she was definitely a role model for me because of her um, intelligence and her, her just her ability to to get things done. Um, I, I would always say that that Margaret Sanger was a role model because I, it was actually from her that I learned all those principles of of um, of uh, embracing controversy and mm -hmm. and how to use it effectively to make social change. I, I, that was that she would be my role model for that. Um, other role models were um, Sojourner Truth. Mm -hmm. now, it was actually when I first heard about Sojourner Truth when I was a fairly young woman, and 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 one of her sayings is that um, if, if I don't know if anybody doesn't know who Sojourner Truth was because she's not as, as famous as some of these people we've been talking about, but she was born a slave. Nobody could be born with less power. She was mm -hmm. born a slave. She had 15, thirteen children, I think, of whom five lived. Thirteen, something like that. Yeah. And um, so three of the five were sold into slavery in other plantations. I mean, this, this is like, she ultimately became a Methodist minister. She became a leading abolitionist. She became a leading women's rights um, advocate. And when she was in her 80s, she was I, arrested for trying to vote in Washington, D.C. And I mean, she, she was in her 80s at that point. I think she was, yes. I couldn't have that wrong. But I, she, was, she was quite an, an elderly woman at that point. And she, she said, if women want more rights than they've got, why don't they just take them? Yeah. I mean, it's that turning yeah. yeah. the whole thing upside down. Yeah. See, don't, don't think about what you can't do. Think about what, well, why not? Well, why not? It's that, I mean, that attitude. So those were people who were role models for me. And um, I, I, I think, I, you know, I, there just are so many people. There are parts of so many people that uh, I, as far as when, when I think about courage, I actually think about oftentimes that you have to think about men who have been in leadership roles like, like Winston Churchill, who mm -hmm. didn't back down, didn't back down, didn't back down. I mean, that, that kind of strength of conviction is what always inspires me in people. And um, I'm sure there are other people. I, 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 that's always a hard question to answer. 
No, but I love the way that you answered it, Gloria, because I think that it's really important when we're thinking about role models or mentorship that we do exactly what you did, which is to go, you know, to take a, a cross-time approach and then to also not just look at people from your culture or your family, but to look at, I think that we can learn from anyone. And I think that we limit ourselves if we say, well, I'm a woman, so my role models should only be women, or I'm African-American, so my role models should only look like me that you know we have access to as human beings the wealth of human knowledge and so to align ourselves with whatever we resonate with and whoever we resonate with gives you more power you know that's right that's right the theme of of your work it's true and you know each person there each person has both uh, we have sort of brilliance and we have our areas where we're not so strong. Mm-hmm. And so it's not surprising, I guess, that we can find pieces of, you know, there, it, somebody will excel or somebody will be a particularly inspiring in one particular area. And maybe they, you know, they screwed up someplace else. But that's just being human, right? Yes. And that's what we're all about. I mean, n- nobody's, nobody's got it all. But we've all got it some. Yes. Yes, I, I'll tell you, uh, the moment when I realized the, the, I guess, the disparity between women and men was when I went in, in my first week of college, because I went to primarily female-centered education. I went to all-girls schools in New York, and then I went to Sarah Lawrence, which is a predominantly women's college. At that time, it was even more so. I think it was like 30% men or something like that, and in the first class that I was in, first seminar that I was used to, if you knew the answer, you raise your hand and you talk. And in this class that I was in, the classes there are very small, so it was less than 12 people, maybe you know, 12 of us or eight of us or something like that. There was one, I think one guy in the class and he was dominating the conversation. And, and it, it was just astounding to me. I'd never seen anything like that, you know, that, I was having the courage to speak up, but I didn't feel like I was having courage. It was just that I had something to say and I was had studied and, you know, was wanted to have a voice about the things we were talking about. And then I started to notice in the classes that there would be one or two men in the class or three men in the class and that they would, when they would start to talk, that the women just kind of shut up. And these are, you know, the women who tend to go to Sarah Lawrence are like, you know, they're not very traditional women. These are women who, or want change. And so it was very interesting to me to just observe that social dynamic. And when typically when the women, you know, these were, we were 18 years old, were speaking up that they had come from uh, female centered education. And so it was a very interesting thing, Mm -hmm. you know, at 18 to observe right there in living color. And what, what was the impact on you? I mean, did you stop raising your hand or did it make you more intent on raising your hand? It made me more intent on raising my hand. And I then, you know, became freshman class president, which was not for me, but, you know, kind of as a reaction to that, just because it was shocking to me. And, you know, most of my teachers who I had gone to school with, um, most of the, the people who had educated me had been directly coming out of the feminist movement. And so these are the people who educated me, but there was a sense that, okay, maybe, because you can easily take things for granted as a young person 
it happens in every generation. So there was the kind of sense of, okay, maybe what they're talking about is just dated. They don't know, you know, hey, it's easy for us. We play on whatever sports team we want or whatever. And then to go and literally have that experience was kind of, it was kind of job, job dropping. No doubt. No doubt. And, and I'll tell you how it starts to translate later on in life. Um, if, if there is a job description, there's say there's a position open and there's a job description for it. And there are three men and three women who might be pretty much equally qualified. If a man looks at the job description and sees one or two things he can do, he will almost always go ahead and apply. He doesn't wait. He doesn't wait for somebody to invite him. He doesn't wait for, you know, to, to feel that he knows everything. The, the, the women on the other hand, will look at the same job description and say, if there are one or two things that they can't do, they'll say, well, maybe I'm not ready. Maybe I'm not ready for this job. Maybe I should go learn something else. Maybe I should, maybe I should, uh, you know, take a course and then I'll apply for it later. But by the later time, that guy is already, he's already got the job. He's already got the job. And so that dynamic that you just described of, who holds their hand up, who speaks in class, that dynamic continues and it actually gets multiplied as we go through life. And it gets multiplied in ways that are very costly. For example, that same dynamic is, is going on when it comes to negotiating our entry-level salaries. Mm. Men are much more aggressive about negotiating their compensation. And whatever you make for that first job, your first professional job, ends up getting, that's what the rest of them get built upon. So the multiplication factor occurs with that too. That's why, the, that is more than anything else responsible for the 22 cent pay gap between men and women. That seems to be so intractable. It's like it's been the same pay gap. It goes up a cent and down a cent, but it just hasn't gone away. And no, it's not that women decide they're going to take time off when they have children because they measure that job for job, time and grade for time and grade. So it's not about that. And in fact, just out of college, even just out of college, women make about eight cents less than men. So if you, that just, you just keep multiplying that over the years. It keeps compounding. And by the time, if you're like for in your instance, you're a college educated professional woman, that could cost you as much as a million dollars over your lifetime. Oh. So, ladies, we need to learn to assess our value properly, not be afraid to, to own that value, not be afraid to raise our hand and say, we're worth it. We know the answer to that question. We know how to do that job. We want to get a chance to do that job. And we deserve to earn X amount because we know what, what the standard of, of pay is out there in the community and really understand how to, how to assert ourselves and negotiate for those things. Because, I mean, what could you do with a million dollars? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. You talk about, you know, finding and flexing your voice in the world. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I for me, I I've got four grandsons who are college age. 
that's a pretty expensive proposition. That's a pretty expensive proposition. Yeah, right. If I had that million dollars back, I could send them all to the top-notch colleges, right? I mean, well, luckily, you're helping other women to generate that for themselves. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're paying it forward. I, you're paying yeah. it forward. Yeah. No, it's just it's just incredibly important, and so that 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 um, you know description that you gave of who raised their hand and who who spoke up. That's how it translates throughout all the things that we end up doing in life, and it's a really important factor. It it really is. I mean, and luckily at that point that I was eighteen, and so I wasn't you know as impressionable as when I was maybe fifteen and trying to get the attention of the boy or you know whatever it was. That it was kind of I was already at a different place in mm -hmm. my life. So. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a 15-year-old and you're in a classroom and you want to look cute and, you know, those sorts of things that, of course, that can have an ingrained effect on you that you then carry, you know, throughout your life. Gloria, what do you do when you feel anxious or afraid or depressed or, you know, have the normal everyday doubts that we have as human beings? Well, the first thing I do is, and this is something that I do almost every day, and it makes a huge difference in my life, and that is that I get up in the morning and I exercise. Mm -hmm. Physical movement for me makes a big difference in, in how I feel emotionally. And if I'm feeling down and depressed, uh, very often I'll just go, I'll go out for a walk. I'll just, you know, it's moving my body. It's, it's almost like, you know, Harry Truman used to say, do something even if it's wrong. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> motion. motion. You know, take some kind of action. Yes, yeah, physics. I tell people physics. An <laughs> yeah. object at rest tends to stay yeah. at rest. An yes. object tends to stay do in motion. Something. Do something. And so I, I just, um, yeah, so, so getting exercise every day just puts me in a better frame of mind overall so that I'm less likely to get depressed in the first place. Um, but I certainly have been there and done that. And, and um, part, part of what I do is, um, I will say that I don't really, I don't probably reach out to other people as quickly or as much as, I, as would be most beneficial for me. And while I'm, I, I harp on this for, <laughs> for other women all the time, I'm probably not as good about that as, as I realize I should be and that I know that it's extremely helpful. If I'll just call up a girlfriend and say, let's go, you know, let's go, let's go to a movie. Let's go have dinner. Let's go have lunch. Let's, let's go take a walk in the park or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, I always end up feeling better. Always end up feeling better when I do that. And, and why do I delay? I don't know. But, um, but I do often delay actually asking for that. Um, also, always somehow being with, with children and grandchildren helps me out. Um, I think for some people, you know, especially younger people who don't have children yet, maybe it's your puppy or your, you know, you're somebody in your family, your your niece, your your sister or something. But it's really important to be around people who think you're smart and good. Mm. You know, people yeah. who if you're if you're with people who think you're smart and good, you're probably smart and good that day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I actually am really, I'm interested to know um, more about your spiritpreneur concept, because I think that's probably, that's probably related to some of these things. I mean, I, for, for whatever that spiritual uh, aspect of it might be, just knowing what it is, it just fills you up. 
yes. it makes you feel better? Is it sitting back with a cup of tea and a good book? Um, I would confess that going to buy a new pair of shoes helps me out a lot. That's why I have way too many shoes in my closet. <laughs> but that's it exactly that for me that being a entrepreneur is all of those parts that I what I came to realize as I was working with women one on one as a coach is that it wasn't just that we we needed the skills to mm -hmm. in order to build something or it wasn't just that we needed the the strategy but I found that we needed soul care as I call it the skills and the strategy those three center those three things particularly as a conscious entrepreneur or as a, a you know spirited entrepreneur as I call it and and just the belief in something you don't have to give a name to it if that makes it makes it uncomfortable for you but being able to have a faith and a belief in in, in what you're doing even if that's just only what the belief is and integrity around it that you then can you know then have the the soul care that you need which is you know helping you to know how to conquer your fears or deal with you know the self-care as you said with working out every day and having your cup of tea and the things that work for you those things when you put them all together make for a whole and healthy human being in whatever you're doing absolutely absolutely and and I think we are learning one of the things that we're learning that that maybe was not so true in previous generations is that we can bring our whole self to whatever we're doing yeah that you know don't you think I, I mean I think that we we used to think that you have to really kind of work is over here and yeah. family is over here and your personal issues and healthcare are over here and then maybe your hobbies are over here but right. I, I do think that we're learning maybe it's because now we all work 24 7 because the technology keeps us connected but but for some reason I feel like I'm seeing people realizing that they can bring their whole self to whatever they do and when they do that they do all of it better yes absolutely and I think that part of that is just also the evolution of women being in the workplace you know that it's not just okay being able to segment yourself and you're this person between nine and you know seven whatever and then you're this person afterward you know you being able to bring your whole self to the party because how you do anything is how you do everything right well I have, I have a, a few more things that I want to get to okay. uh, so I want to know, Gloria, if you can just share with us really briefly one of your most uh, powerful tools, I think, is the Tell Your Story tool, which is power tool number nine. Can you recommend uh, or just explain to us about telling your story? To me, this is everything. It's true. It's true. I, well, first of all, as human beings, we actually learn more through stories than almost any other mode of getting information. You know, if you think about it, if you if somebody somebody gives you a set of facts, you may be interested in it. If somebody weaves those facts into a story, you may will you may be much more likely to remember it because it, it there there's somehow it makes a it makes a connection. Your story is your power and your truth. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, did you read Dr. Seuss books when you were a kid? Yeah. Yes, you know, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss says, nobody is youer than you. Yes. <laughs> and, and this is true. Nobody can be you. And so when you are willing to tell your authentic story, 
it just makes so it just it connects you with other people and the universe in a way that nothing else does mm -hmm. and that is how we transmit information that is how we that is how we make uh, our our work more successful i think even you know even if you think about what is advertising you know, mm -hmm. if you just think of hard-nosed business practices, those companies that tell their stories the best are the most successful. Yes. They know who they are. They know what their purpose is. And it's not flim-flam. It has to be really authentic. And if they tell their story well, they're going to be more successful. So this isn't just some, you know, kind of marshmallowy, fuzzy, feel-good right. kind of thing. This is real practical stuff. Yes. Um, we just understand better through stories than anything else. And um, I, honestly, I, I'm so tired of telling my own story of being a teen mom. But what I have learned is that that it's the thing that people most appreciate. It's the thing that makes them able to then hear the rest of what I want to tell them. Yes. Because they realize I'm just a human being too. And so I think your story also makes you relatable. It absolutely does. And it makes, as you said, it's the way that we process information. We say, oh, okay, this is who this woman is. Look at her journey. Look at all that she's accomplished. And we then see you in a grander context and are then able to hear, you know, everything else that you are bringing to the table. So... Gloria, as we are wrapping up, I want to just share with you that I define a sacred bombshell as a woman who loves, honors, and cherishes herself in mind, body, and spirit. You know, and I talk about self-love and self-worth as being the foundation of everything mm -hmm. that I do. How did you learn to love yourself, Gloria? And what makes you, by the definition I gave, what makes you a sacred bombshell? Oh, gosh, wow. You know, our, our initial tendency, my initial tendency, of course, like I think for many women is to say, oh, pshaw, you know, I can't be any of those things. I, yeah, just little old me. But I, I, I really have to attribute some of it to, again, to my grandmother, who I'm telling you, just thought I was the smartest thing ever. And um, <laughs> my grandmother again, she, she, she gave me those kinds of affirmations and they weren't um, you know, they weren't gratuitous at all. I mean, they, she, they, but they, but she did make me feel somehow that I was smart and that I was worthy. And I really think it's important for children as young as possible to start getting some of those kinds of messages. And it, it just, it, it feeds you for the rest of your life. But honestly, I believe in the, at the end, in the end, we only learn it by doing it. You only do it by doing it. You only, you grow those muscles by using them. And that it's about taking a risk. Um, take, doing, what, doing what scares you to death. Taking that risk, taking that step, giving it a try. Gloria's theory of planning is that if you think big, you may not achieve 100% of what you put out there, but you're going to end up doing about 90% more than you would have if you hadn't put that big goal out. Mm. So to me, that is really, you don't have to be, you don't have to get to 100%. You just have to get further than you would have if you hadn't had the courage to go ahead and give it a try. So my mantra is, is the Nike swoosh, you know, just do it. Just do it. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> 
beautiful, Gloria. Is there any other advice that you want to leave your, your best pieces of advice? I feel like you've given us so much and that there will be a link here of how people can join you with Paradigm Shift. Is there anything else pressing, burning advice? I mean, uh, in addition to just do it and all of the other gems that you've given us in this? No, I, I just, I mean, to say that in a more serious way, I, I do want anyone who's who may be watching this and who may be uh, concerned about whether or not to try something to mm -hmm. to really get that principle that you do, we do grow our courage muscles the same way we grow our physical muscles by using them and that you'll never be sorry you'll always learn something from anything and everything you try to do even if it even if it quote unquote fails mm -hmm. it's not a failure because you're going to learn something from it and you're going to do something better the next time and you've got the capability to do that and i feel so I just feel so honored to have a chance to continue this kind of conversation. Um, I'm excited about the Paradigm Shift event this week uh, because I'm going to get to interview three amazing women who will also share their, their um, good tips and tools. And I just want to invite anybody who would like to come see more about what Take the Lead is doing to come to TakeTheLeadWomen.com and We've got a free weekly newsletter that we've just started that's just real short, but it gives you lots of information and a, and a tip here and there, the kind of thing that keeps us going and keeps us moving. And we've just launched a free, um, um, what we call them virtual happy hours, mm -hmm. um, webcast series. So, you know, we invite people to join us for those things and let us know what you think. Tell us what you're interested in. We want to hear all about it, and, and we're on this journey together, and I'm thrilled to be able to be on this journey with you today, Abiola. Oh, well, thank you, Gloria. This has been such a powerful and enriching conversation. Please also let people know where they can find you and take the lead on social media. You have a huge social oh, media presence. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me about that. Yes, I'm kind of a social media addict myself. And um, because I can only remember my own name, all <laughs> of my handles are my own name. <laughs> Gloria Felt. You just have to remember that Felt is F-E-L-D-T. So at Gloria Felt. And then on, on LinkedIn and on Facebook and Google Plus, I'm, I'm also Gloria Felt. And, um, and then take the and, and I do have a website, a personal website, GloriaFelt.com. Take the lead is TakeTheLeadWomen.com. And our Twitter handle is at Take Lead Women. And then our social media, our other social media is Take the Lead Women. So uh, we'd love to see people and engage with them in any or in all of those places. Beautiful. And you have on one of your social media sites, I saw one of my favorite sayings that I've been saying for years, woman up. <laughs> woman up. You got yes. it. Yes. <laughs> this was wonderful and we're going to throw some new positive bees in there brilliant and beautiful bountiful love it <laughs> great, I love those old, big vision lives so thank you so much gloria namaste the sacred bombshell in me sees adores and accepts the sacred bombshell in you and i look forward to more conversations in the future thank you aviola such thank a delight you. to be with you you're welcome. Thank you for your sister courage and sharing that with us. Bye. Bye. -bye. <laughs>